Hello, it's been a long time. I've been a bit lax with the podcasts of late. Not sure why. It seems some things have ended and I've had to get my head around these endings, the changes in projects and the changes in the people I've been working with. And what's been consuming me of late is that I'm delivering a workshop at the 2021 Big Sky Readers and Writers Festival. That's our local Geraldton Festival. And that's at the end of September. I've called the workshop Nature Speak. Look, I'll give you the blurb. Bringing non-Indigenous people back into relationship with the land is a process that involves shifting from an industrial mechanical mindset to an earth-centred reality. How do we embrace the language needed to support this paradigm shift? Indigenous knowledge systems have a lot to teach us, as do the best of regenerative land management systems. Words, language, the meaning that they carry can reshape our world. For many of us, entanglement and connection with complex ecological systems begins in the garden. So this is where we relearn our native tongue. Okay, so that was the blurb. What I'm trying to do is combine an unruly mess of stuff picked up from Aboriginal knowledge systems, regenerative agricultural practices and holistic thinking. They've been enthralling me for months, but how do I turn them into a gripping workshop? Well, with difficulty, it's been an extremely organic process. I've started with the garden because my own gardening practices have changed hugely after months of exposure to the mysteries of microbial life in the soil, to all the regenerative broadacre cropping ideas and the latest iteration of animals as tools of landscape restoration that comes through holistic management. And it's been a brilliant season for all growers because of rain, rain and more rain. sharing all of this workshopping stuff with a friend I visited recently. I hadn't seen her in years and she had a newish house with a good-sized yard. Out the back was a big flat area covered with a monoculture of weeds, some kind of soil-hugging broadleaf plant like a dandelion. We started talking garden strategy and I gave her my best thinking. Right, it's winter, the rains are still coming, best year ever. So get a lot of seeds, Anything you can get your hand on that's cheap and available. Bird seed's good because it contains four or five species and annual greens like rocket, mitsuna, silverbeet, marigolds, nettles, flax, linseed. And most people seem to have packets of seeds they've brought from the health food store driven by the latest craze in superfoods. Quinoa, chia, linseed, chickpea, alfalfa, etc. If you haven't turned them into smoothies or green drinks or sprouts, best to plant the stuff. I added that seeds like alfalfa are gold because they're nitrate fixing as well as having pretty flowers in summer and being perennial will come up year after year like clockwork. So once you've got the seeds, poke holes in the ground or pull up a few of the existing plants to create space and get as many seeds into the earth as possible. At this point, I had to stop talking. My friend was looking really puzzled, pained even, and said, Oh, that sounds like a lot of work. Then she added, will I be able to mow it? It was my turn to look pained. Mow it? Why on earth would you mow it? And why would you think it would be a lot of work? I thought the hard bit would be getting the seed. 
That's why I spent so much time going on about health foods, etc. Because most people don't seem to regard seed collecting as one of the most riveting activities a person can undertake. Inexplicable, I know. I explained it would be 30 minutes, tops, crouched and moving like a crab across the back patch, armed with a kitchen fork and a jar of mixed seeds. What is hard about that? So my garden interventions had fallen on uncomprehending ears. Based as they were and are on reflection, on underlying principles that my friend had never given any thought to. I know my strategy was sound. Her soil, based on the evidence of the weed monoculture, is poor, no resilience. Diverse plantings will start to change the soil profile, allowing for less hardy plants to get a hold. And all that diversity will boost soil microbial action with the added benefit of producing fast-growing annual greens for the kitchen table. And the different role annuals and perennials play in a landscape is another story that was, that was totally new to her. Annuals aren't heavily rooted and are geared to bloom in the growing season and wither, die and blow away in the dry months. By contrast, perennials have much deeper roots, excellent water-holding capacity and can be part of a strategy over the dry months to stop the backyard soil blowing into the house when the weeds and other annuals dry up. The big thinking behind this is to use plants to shift the soil environment from low fertility, which is suitable only for pioneer species, commonly regarded as weeds, to higher fertility. Many seeds make light work. Get it? Light as in not heavy, light as in sunlight. And what a metaphor for life. Diversity, it's speaking to inclusion and liberation. For the seeds prepared to tackle the tough conditions, they have support from fellow seeds, both like and non-alike. And in the conditions developed by the first wave of sprouters, arrives help for the ones who need stronger networks above and below ground to thrive. I backtracked and asked her the question I should have asked first, the crucial one to do with context. What did she want to achieve with her garden? Answer, she wanted to have it mowed. I could have noted there was no compost bin in the kitchen, food scraps in with the general rubbish, out-of-season fruit hanging around, no judgement. I mean, when it has ever been imprinted on us that eating food grown locally in the season it grows make any kind of difference to anyone or anything... And is this even a relevant thing to be troubled out loud about, as Stephen Jenkinson would say, if it's a product like strawberries? Anyway, the point is, I did not prepare the ground properly for a good exchange of knowledge. And me, a self-styled communicator on agricultural matters, probably good that I'm getting into the workshop business. I'll get to see what's landing from my hard-earned learning. For too long, I have been occupying this rarefied zone of podcasting where I get turned off or listened to without having to suffer the eye rolling. It'll do me good to see people face to face. Anyway, the conversation moved on and a more promising exchange emerged when she asked me about the ingredients of a small jar of homemade pesto I'd bought as a gift. I listed the greens that were in it and they were found in my garden nasturtium leaves, coriander, rocket, mitsuna, a few baby sweet potato leaves, 
tiny micro nettle plants, mint, and the last of the Thai basil just hanging in from the warmer months. Now that was landing. Who couldn't love something that abundant, cheap and nutritious? And all I'd done after picking the leaves was to add a clove of garlic and a handful of almonds, pepitas, sunflower seeds, peanuts, olive oil and parmesan to taste. Had I inadvertently hit on the way to introduce environmentally geared growing methods based on whole ecosystem thinking to the household gardener? I'll start with the humble green pesto. It certainly puts biodiversity front and centre of the discussion. With the bigger idea of changing the environment in line with the movement of the seasons, rather than focusing on the species and soil conditions or arguing whether something is a weed or not, I think I've got a good start for this workshop. themes of the workshop that I've been working on, the idea that all people need to connect to country. Tyson Yunkaporter's contention is that this is how human beings, not just Indigenous folk, are meant to live. We are meant to be nested, connected, entangled within a particular place, a particular earth, particular sky camps. He advocates a coming to place in relational rather than extractive ways of dealing with the world. Right way, he calls it. And this is a good segue to wrong way. I wanted to tell you about a Saturday morning I went to a couple of months ago, a presentation where three Midwest mining companies spoke to a small group of interested locals. They were there to showcase their businesses and practices to the community, and all three were keen to be seen as useful corporate citizens people who care about the environment and want to bring economic opportunity to local folk as they go about the business of digging stuff up. And all three, they were scouting for serious investment to take them past exploration and planning to the next stage. My favourite presentation was from the man behind VRX Silica. This is what I learnt. Silica is a major ingredient in concrete and glass and consequently one of the most used commodities in the world. The presenter explained that beach and desert sands won't work to make flat glass as distinct from container glass, and that WA has a lot of the right kind of sand, granite-derived silica sand. So it's easy to dig up, requires virtually no processing to make export ready, you just add water to wash the sand, has a huge market in nearby Asia, and this particular company has come up with a perfect environmental practice to persuade the EPA that this will not harm the environment. The Arrowsmith area, situated just south of Geraldton, has an estimated 700 million tonnes of highly desirable silica sand just waiting to be dug up. They're looking at an initial tenement that is 12 kilometres long and four kilometres wide. Now this is the bit I can't get past. 
The presenter showed a short video demonstrating a conservation technique called vegetation direct transfer, or VDT. So the video is animated and shows a machine with a wide flat mouth that is able to scoop up 150 metres square patches of vegetation to a depth of 400 millimetres. The animation modelled this adapted bulldozer picking up a patch of low heath country. So we were looking at a wide mouth dinky toy sliding under and lifting a flat pale green plane of colour and placing it in a matching patch of the same size where the mining had been completed. They demonstrated an environmental process so benign, efficient, bloodless and entertaining that it seems nothing could ever possibly go wrong. It was mesmerising. So mesmerising that at the time I didn't think to ask how deeply they would mine. I phoned the bloke later. Six to nine metres, averaging out at eight metres. So they effectively planned to lift up a 12 by 4 kilometre slice of country, like lifting biscuits out of a tray, to be returned theoretically and in, in an exact checkerboard pattern at a nearby spot in the same format. Only the landscape's been dropped or gouged out to eight metres below the current ground level. The reason why they don't go deeper than that is that surface water lies at 10 to 12 metres and they want to avoid the complications of moisture. And other questions I didn't ask, can this be done all year? Wouldn't the heat load on exposed sand plain in summer with no rain be too extreme to think about re-establishing plant life? And this would be for six months of the year, surely. But the presenter was so proud of the process his hid mob had developed and it had been tested by Iluka, who play a part in this story and that they set up and monitor a, a number of sites to test this lift and place technique. It works, they claim. Only one thing has been suggested by the botanist working with the group. Perhaps the heath should be burnt first to stimulate regrowth. The presenter was confident it would become the gold standard for this kind of mining. It will cost a fair amount to pull off, as all mining does, but a lot less than those mining outfits having to go deep into the earth, employing crushers and other post-dig processes to extract their ore, and also many miles from ports and markets. And VRX silica are alive for the downstream opportunities. Close to two major gas pipelines, roads and a port, Geraldton, there is major potential to create a glass manufacturing plant that would bring skilled jobs and economic growth to the Midwest. Is this better than the massive gashes and heaps mining inflicts on the body of WA? Well, probably. Within the context of capitalism, this defines a best practice peak performance extraction operation. What wasn't mentioned was this low heath country, called Kwongan by Aboriginal traditional owners, is world-renowned for its exceptionally high species richness. It's unassuming-looking prickly, scrubby land, but it contains a large proportion of the diversity of WA's plants. Part of the seduction of this morning was that these mining folk were having fun. They obviously enjoy what they do. They love the problem solving involved in engineering challenges. 
and the complexities of playing the, the game amidst changing financial, social and environmental circumstances. As long-time players, they've formed easy, supportive, collegiate relationships and are driving their extractive business models with as much sensitivity to social and environmental concerns as it is possible within a low-context, dollar-driven model they occupy. There are no villains here. But what if we put this model aside for a minute and put the health of the earth and all its living systems first and tried to tune out Mark McGowan shouting down the pollies by telling them WA is keeping Australia afloat by dint of our skilful mining practices and seemingly untroubled exchange of ore and money with China. It's all weird. And I'd like to thank Tyson and media theorist and writer Douglas Rushkoff, who's a presenter of a podcast called Team Human that inspired Tyson's own podcast called The Other Others, which you should have a listen. Mm-hmm.